Welcome to the Temple Baptist Church Podcast, coming to you from Swan River, Manitoba, Canada. This week, we join Pastor Neil Effa as he preaches part six of his series, Sent, Living a Life on Mission, in this message from February 17th. It's easy for Christians to feel discouraged when they see the declining church attendance or witness a growing secularization of our society. It can be disheartening for Christians as they find themselves on the margins of the culture. But the reality is, as Christians, we live in a post-Christian culture and era. The Bible no longer has authority in public discourse. The church no longer has a privileged voice. Church leaders still get invited to government occasions and government functions, but on matters of ethics, they are ignored. Most people do not believe in a personal God, and and most people do not believe that there is only one true religion. People are biblically illiterate. In their book, Everyday Church, Tim Chester and Steve Timmis shares this account. In a London school, a teenager with no church connections hears the Christmas story for the first time. His teacher tells it well, and he is fascinated by the amazing story. Risking his friend's mockery after the lesson, he thanks her for the story. One thing had disturbed him, and so he asks, why did they give the baby a swear word for his name? Although this is an extreme case, it illustrates the growing disconnection between Christianity and our culture. Lyndon Bowering, the executive chairman of CARE, said in an interview a number of years ago, the greatest challenge is a growing secularization of society where Christianity is being increasingly squeezed out of our national life. The ultimate result of this tendency will be a society that is hostile to Christian truth and practice. Although the religious landscape looks bleak, We as followers of Jesus do not need to be discouraged, nor do we need to be pessimistic. God's word is still being proclaimed. The gospel is still the power of God for salvation. The Lord's arm is not too short that it cannot save. The Holy Spirit is alive and well in the world today. Christ will build his church. God still rules and reigns and one day will fully and completely establish his kingdom on this earth. Therefore, we do not need to be discouraged or pessimistic. However, although we do not need to be discouraged or pessimistic, I do believe that the church in North America has drifted from its intended purpose. Therefore, we need to shift in our th- we need a shift in our thinking, and as a result, a shift in our practices. Merely opening our doors each Sunday will not advance God's mission in the world. Offering a good product and programs and services will not be enough. We merely cannot rely on business as usual. It cannot mean more of the same. It must involve a qualitative change rather than simply a, 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 rather than simply a quantitative change. One of the common assumptions when people fail to turn up to church is that we need to improve the experience of church gatherings. We need to improve the product. We need better music or more relevant sermons or multimedia presentations. The problem with this approach is the assumption that people will come to church if the product is better. Now, don't hear what I am not saying. 
I am not saying that we should not gather corporately or collectively. I'm not saying that we should not have good music or more relevant sermons or multimedia presentations. But what I am saying is that we cannot rely on these methods to fulfill God's mission. We cannot assume people will come to us if our product is better. Cam Roxburgh, Vice President of Missional Initiatives with a North American Baptist Conference, writes about the kind of shift we need to have in our beliefs and in our practices. He refers to it as a renewed theological vision of the church on mission with God, serving as a sign, servant, and foretaste of the kingdom of God. This renewed theological vision is an understanding that God is on mission. His mission among us is to glorify himself through the work of redeeming people and restoring creation. By his very nature, God is a missionary God. He is a sending God who has called his people, the church, to carry out his mission in the world. In other words, mission was not made for the church. Rather, the church was made for mission. The church is God's instrument, his tool to carry out his mission. As his people, we are to be missionary agents of his love and glory. The church is not about us. It's not about our preferences. Rather, and it's not an end in itself. It's about God and his mission. And mission is not merely an activity of the church. It is not a program of the church. It's not a church growth strategy. It is a very heartbeat and work of God. His desire is to see humankind and creation reconciled, redeemed, restored. Therefore, he sends his people, his church, into their neighborhoods, into their communities, into the world, to proclaim and to enact or demonstrate the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in so doing, those who do not know Jesus get a foretaste of God's kingdom. When the church is a foretaste of God's kingdom, it demonstrates what life is like when men and women live under the rule and reign of God. When we pursue reconciliation and justice, when we seek to help those who are oppressed or enslaved in, in habits and addictions. We are demonstrating to them what the rule of God is like, what they can be like when they bring their lives under the rule and reign of God. And so in this way, the church, although not perfect, becomes a concrete, a tangible expression of the kingdom of God that is yet to come. And so Jesus calls his followers to join him in his mission to declare his rule and his reign. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He didn't say, believe in me so that you can go to heaven. Every Christian then is to live a life of radical transformation and devotion to Christ and to his mission. The sad thing, however, is that many Christians don't advance past their initial salvation experience. And so in light of that, our marginal status in our society is an opportunity for us to rediscover the missionary call as a people of God. And it is an opportunity to reconnect with the scriptures. It is a great mission of God that permeates the scriptures as, as God reveals his nature as a sender, the one who sends his people. All over, as I mentioned earlier, over the last several weeks, we have been exploring the theme of sent, living a life on mission. 
In John 20, 21, Jesus spoke these words to his disciples and by extension to us, as a father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And so this morning we want to explore another important aspect or element of our sentness, this idea that we are a sent people. And it is this, compelled by love, we are sent with the gospel into our neighborhoods, into our communities and world in the power of the Holy Spirit. Compelled by love. When some Pharisees put Jesus to the test concerning the greatest of all God's commandments, Jesus answered them with a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22 verses 37 to 38, in response to the question. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is a great and first commandment. This ought to stop us and ask us the question, what does it mean to love God with all our heart, soul, and might? An easy way to answer this is to say that Jesus is clearly meaning that we are to love God with everything that we are. Both the heart and the soul especially have to do with the very center of our lives as human beings. They are where our life springs from and therefore there should not be an area of our lives that isn't touched by this command. We're to commit everything to God and bring everything under his control, giving ourselves to him entirely for the rest of our lives. More specifically, there are a number of areas covered by these three words. They imply that we should love God with all of the following. Our desires. Conforming our desires to those which will please and honor God. Our affections, that we love those things that God loves. Our purposes, that we pursue those things that God would have us pursue our will that we choose that which is good in our lives, our feelings, that we subject our feelings to the truth of God's word, our character, that we pursue holiness and righteousness and godliness and purity, and our thoughts, that we meditate on the truth of God's word and live every day in the light of it. However, like the Ephesian church described in Revelation chapter 2, we are prone to abandon the love that we had when we first began our walk with God. We erect idols in our lives which consume our love, which consume our devotion, our passion, and our energy. We're often drawn to worship at the shrine of possessions and, and power and prestige and image. But God says, love me and love me alone. I want to be the object of your love. I want to be the object of your affection. I want to be the object of your desire. But God has not called us to conjure up this life-consuming love for him out of thin air. It isn't primarily a test of our willpower as to whether we can achieve this level of God, a level of love for God. Our love for God is primar primarily a response to the incomparable love that God has shown in his son, Jesus. As Jesus died on a Roman cross, paying the penalty for our sin, 
There was literally nothing more that he could give us. There is no greater love than a man laying down his life for his friends. And this, of course, is the essence of the gospel message. Though we were far from God, sinners and his enemies, though we were completely unworthy of God's love and acceptance, he chose to send Jesus into this world to give himself for us. It is as we come to recognize more and more just how great the love of God is for us. That reality that we are then enabled to love him in return. And so I encourage you to remind yourself daily of the amazing sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you do, may he, may he by the power of the Holy Spirit, empower you to lay down your life for him as he laid down his life for you. But after quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, Jesus went on to say in Matthew chapter 22, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What did Jesus mean when he said the two commandments are alike? Well, obviously they both deal with love. The first calls for wholehearted love toward God, a love that consumes every human faculty. The second calls for charitable love towards one na one's neighbor, a humble, sacrificial, serving love. And Jesus said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So the entire law is summed up in the principle of love. Paul said in Romans chapter 13, verse 10, love is the fulfillment of the law. Both commandments make that point. But there's another sense in which the second great commandment is just like the first. Loving one's neighbor is simply the natural and necessary extension of true, wholehearted love for God. John Bloom writes, The most loving thing we can do for others is to love God more than we love them. For if we love God most, we will love others best. Let me repeat that. The most loving thing we can do for others is to love God more than we love them. For if we love God most, we will love others best. He goes on to say, I know this sounds like preposterous gobbledygook to an unbeliever. How can you love someone best by loving someone else most? But those who have encountered the living God understand what I mean. They know the depth of love and breath of grace that flows out from them toward others when they themselves are filled with love for God and all he is for them and means to them in Jesus. And they know the comparatively shallow and narrow love they feel toward others when their affection for God is ebbing. There's a reason why Jesus said the second greatest commandment is like the first. If we love God with all of our heart, we will love our neighbor as ourselves. It functions like faith and works. If we truly have the first, the second will naturally follow. But if God is not the love of our life, there is no way that we will truly love our neighbor as ourselves, for we will love ourselves supremely. The reason we will love others best when we love God most is that love in its truest, purest form only comes from God. Because God is love. Love is a fundamental part of his nature. We are only able to love him or anyone else because he first loved us. 
we are only able to give freely to others what we have freely received from God. Luke in his gospel records the same conversation Jesus had with his lawyer. However, his record is a little bit more detailed. After Jesus told the lawyer to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his neighbor as himself, Luke tells us that the lawyer responded with a question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus used that question to launch into the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I'm sure that you know the story well. A man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho was attacked by robbers, was beaten, left to die. A priest came down the road, saw the man, and passed by on the other side. Then a Levite, another religious man, came across his beaten man, and he too walked around him. Then a third man showed up on the scene, a Samaritan, someone who would have been despised by the Jews. He saw the man, he had compassion on him, cleaned his wounds, took him to an inn, and ensured that he would be well looked after. After telling the parable, Jesus asked the lawyer this question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer had the right answer. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And in response to that, Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Now, the Greek word for neighbor means near one, near one. So it raises a question. If all three men were strangers to the wounded man, what set the Samaritan apart as a neighbor? Was he just a better person by nature? Was he guided by a, by a better moral compass? If you read the text carefully, you'll discover that the priest and the Levite first saw the wounded man, and then they crossed around him to the other side. Well, the Samaritan drew near to the wounded man before seeing him. As he did so, the Samaritan was stirred with compassion. In other words, it wasn't until he came near to this man and saw him as he actually was, was he moved with compassion. And the same Greek word is used in the parable of the prodigal son. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced and kissed him. This is a kind of emotion and, and feeling that stirred within the Samaritan as he saw that man that had been beaten by robbers. He felt for compassion for him in the same way that the father felt compassion for his prodigal son. What we have in this parable of the Good Samaritan is a gospel story. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul writes, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There was a time when we were left for dead, dead in our trespasses and our sins. But Christ drew near, saw us, had compassion on us, and with mercy reached out to us. He too bound up our wounds and made sure that we were well cared for. He came near us. Likewise, we are to treat those who are far off as if they were near. And in drawing near, we become their neighbors. It's natural to care for those who are close to us. Not only those who are close in proximity, 
but who are close to us, who are just like us, who live in the same kind of neighborhood, who are in the same kind of income bracket, who drive the same kind of vehicle, who go on the same kind of vacations, who put their kids in the same kind of activities. However, what's unnatural is Christ's invitation to draw near to those who seem far from us, not only in proximity, but those who have a different worldview than we have, those who have a different income bracket than we have, those who have a different lifestyle, those who hold to different values, those who are from another race or from another culture, those who are impoverished, those who are enslaved by addictions, those who have experience who are, that are vastly different than ours. And yet Jesus says to us, draw near. And in drawing near, you become a neighbor to them. I believe Jesus is saying that, as, that once we draw close enough to truly see someone for who they are, we will have the capacity to love even the remotest of strangers. We will seek to come near. What does this parable have to do with living a life on mission? This parable has the focus, the emphasis that to live a life on mission, we must come near to those who seem so far away from us. We need to come near to those who, as I indicated before, who, have, who live in different categories than we live in. And we need to be willing to take those steps toward them. Like the good Samaritan did. He took that, that step toward that man. And as he stepped toward him, he saw the man for who he was, beaten and bruised and bloodied. He saw his need. When unconditional love expressed through acts of mercy rise up from our lives, it tees up conversations about Jesus. When we come near to those far away serving in the spirit of love, they will want to know who you are and why are you doing this. I remember hearing this phrase in, oh, a number of years ago. Good deeds create goodwill. And goodwill creates the opportunity to share the good news. If we individually and collectively are going to be engaged in God's mission, we need to move out of our comfort zones. We can need to come near to those who are far away. We need to find ways to draw near to those who are so vastly different from us so that we can announce that God's kingdom has come in the person of Jesus Christ. So that we can show them what life is like when a person comes under the rule and reign of God. We can only do that when Christ is our supreme desire. We can only do so when we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is then that love oozes from our life, springs from our life, gushes from our life, overflows from our life into the lives of others. And so the most loving thing we can do for others is to love God more than we love them. For if we love God most, we will love others best. Let me ask you, 
Is Christ your supreme delight and desire? Is he the object of your love? Object of your delight? The object of your passion, of your affection? Or have you abandoned the love you once had for him? Has your love grown cold? This morning we saw a video featuring Michael Frost. He says, sometimes we use Jesus just as a key to eternal life. Just as the dispenser of our needs. God, give me this. God, do this for me. But he said, when was the last time that the awe of God filled our soul? We were just overtaken with the wonder and amazement of God. And we're left in awe and in wonder. It is easy to lose a passion of that love, to lose perspective on what it is Jesus has done for us, and to allow the love for other things to replace our love for Christ. But remember, God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Such love expressed toward others is a mark of someone who follows Jesus. Sacrificial love expressed in acts of mercy, justice, reconciliation, and healing bears witness to the rule and reign of God through Christ Jesus. Compelled by love. That is what missional living is all about. That's a key component of our sentness. That as a father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We are sent people compelled by love. Heavenly Father, the words of Jesus in Matthew 22 are powerful words, sobering words. To love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. I ask, Father, that in the quietness of this moment, your spirit would fall fresh upon us and remind us of these truths, but, Father, also to reveal to us what is in our hearts. And Father, I pray that we would be people who would be willing to leave our comfort zones and to tread toward people, to move toward people who are far from us, not only in proximity, but people who are far from us in, in lifestyle and in worldviews and in experiences so that we can announce and proclaim to them through words and acts of grace what the reign and rule of God is all about through Jesus. I ask this in the name of Thanks for joining us. We hope we were able to provide wisdom and insight in your faith journey. If you would like to connect with us, you are welcome to join our service every Sunday morning at 1030. For more information, you can find us at facebook.com slash TBC Swan River. And if you would like to find more episodes of our podcast, go to anchor.fm slash Temple Baptist Church or search on your favorite podcast app.